Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. I've been fascinated with the MiG-19 for a while now because it's an aircraft I didn't really know about so uh, it's going to be great to talk to you about this but I want to know how you got posted to the MiG-19. Okay uh, so continuing from from uh, number 19 squadron in Karachi where I was uh, my first squadron and so after after a, uh, after a while after uh, maybe a year or so in 1970 late 70 early 71 I got posted to another squadron in what is now Bangladesh in Dhaka, uh, and uh, just just before our uh, 71 war started. So on on F 86s again. So I was in Dhaka, and uh, there was no war. There's a lot of tension going on. I loved it over there, but uh, for some reason, after flying the F 86 over there, which I was really enjoying it, I just been there maybe eight months or nine months in uh, Bangladesh in now Bangladesh, then East Pakistan, that I got transferred onto the MiG-19. So I was very happy about that. And I, uh, uh, and uh, so the MiG-19 at that time was an awesome airplane. You know, it's a fantastic airplane. The other airplanes we had, the high-performance high airplane was uh, the uh, 104s. We had a handful of 104s that were still flying F-104s, the Starfighters, Fighters. Mm -hmm. And so I got uh, transferred to the, onto the MiG-19 on, on our, our fighter town, our crack base, Sargoda. And uh, my squad was number 23 squadron, which I have great memories of. And that's where I trained to fly the MiG-19 and stayed there for about three years, a little over three years. Yeah, so, yeah, what were your first thoughts of the aircraft? Because the first time I saw it, it was there's so many things coming off it, and there's, the, you know, it's it's not, it's almost like an ugly duckling, but I love it because it's like an ugly duckling, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe you love it as like a, an aesthetical thing, but I don't look at it and say that's a beauty, but it looks pretty cool. I, I think that's the appeal of the mid-19s looks like, that it looks like a beast, it, does. It, it is really a beast. does. it is a beast. And when you look at it, you know, for it to go Mark 1. almost 1.4, 1.35 or something, in level flight, they do that. And uh, so it's uh, raw uh, brute force. Aerodynamically, when you look at it, it doesn't look like a supersonic airplane. And it's got, uh, you know, things sticking out here and there. So uh, it's a beast to look at, and it's a beast to fly. But imagine. a beautiful beast, if you can tame the beast. It's a, it's a fantastic airplane. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is that it's uh, it's the appearance is very crude. So is the cockpit. Old technology, uh, the cockpit has big switches like, you know, household switches, the whole row of switches here and there. The instrumentation was all 
what you'd consider after the F-86 to the T-33 completely out of whack because you'd find that the, the uh, artificial horizon is a small one. The clock is a huge, big one. I mean, who needs that? <laughs> and so, you know, it was all kind of we used to we, uh, surprise us. But you got used to it pretty quick. The other big uh, uh, quirky difference when I got onto the MIGs is it had all pneumatics more than hydraulics. So like the the, the brakes, the wheel brakes in the was not in the feet as uh, you know you what is used to. It was in the hand in the you know joystick. So there was this thing sticking out in the, on the joystick, and you push that and you push the rudder in. Let's go. Right. all these pneumatic sounds, and they have to return on the ground to taxi. So these are the and and the, the joystick or the control column. It was it sat pretty high compared to the eighty six or the T thirty three or or the Mirage or something, and it it sat pretty high. That needed getting used to it. You know what the hell is that? <laughs> uh, but uh, you got you got used to it. Mm-hmm. So what we yeah what was the initial role of the nineteen with the Pakistan Air Force? It was a multi-role uh, airplane we're using it for because it's very high performance, uh, climb rate and uh, high performance. We, and, and also uh, because of its uh, massive uh, three 30 millimeter cannons, and we had modified it to carry also the uh, sidewinders, the AIM-9s. Uh, so we, we used it for uh, air superiority, for closer, closer patrols, and also for fighter sweeps, uh, and and also for air to ground, because air to ground uh, with these three massive cannons, it was a very effective uh, tank killer or against uh, softer targets like uh, trucks or even bridges and all. Very very good uh, gun. So we used it multi role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm really interested in this. Um, your training on the aircraft. What was it like coming from a Western aircraft onto you know a Soviet Russian aircraft? Was there a big difference or, I don't know, um, a difficulty getting to learn to the, the systems? And were they in Russian, everything, or was it in your own language? It's in Chinese. So all our MiGs were Chinese-made. So they were Russian-designed airplanes, Soviet-designed uh, airplanes, and they were all manufactured in China. So uh, it was difficult. It was, uh, I'm, I'm sure the first PF pilots who converted onto the MiGs which was maybe two years before I went onto the MiGs, they must have had a hard task because all the manuals, all the uh, checklists and everything was in Chinese. Oh, wow. So they had to, they had to translate it through some Chinese, or even, even the briefings and all, they, they must have got in China when they went to pick up the airplanes uh, from Xinjiang was through interpreters. So they must have had a very hard time uh, converting onto the mix, and uh, but when by the time we got on there, our, the manuals were translated in English, the checklists were translated in English. The instruments, the difference was they now we are in kph kilometers per hour and mm. uh, the, the fuel gauges and everything. So we had to get used to that. Other than that, the you know you, you got used to the uh, the cockpit environment. Uh, it wasn't too much. But then the, the, the whole, uh, you know, the pneumatic system, like I'm telling you about the uh, pneumatic brakes and stuff like that, 
that needed a bit of better get used to. We started to fly, when I started to uh, fly the MiG-19 before that, they put us on the MiG-15. We had dual-seater MiG-15, we used to call them the U-MiGs, which had a lot of similarity. Instrumentation all was same as uh, the 19s, and uh, of course, much lesser performance. So that was a big help. With a, that was with a dual-seater instructor. And I definitely want to talk about your first flight. What was it like having Afterburner for the first time? Awesome. That's <laughs> that's uh, really uh, fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you know, once, once we did, I forget now, but 10 or 15 hours on the U-Make, the MiG-15 uh, dual-seater, then you went to the MiG-19. And again, like on the F-86, we used to do a high-speed taxi on the runway with the instructor, and then and the first flight, again, would be a solo flight with the instructor on a chase airplane. Which, you know, I still marvel. I never did that as an instructor on the fighters, but I, I think that probably is, was a, as an instructor must have been the most, most difficult job to have a young guy in a high-performance airplane for the first time, and now you're chasing him, you're flying your own airplane, and you're looking at him and telling him, and then to guide him down and make him land the first time. So my first time, now I'm not... My memory fails, maybe Castle would uh, tell you better. I don't know if the first takeoff or the first few takeoffs were in afterburner or we used to have a full, like a military power. Military power, yeah. So it's less than after afterburner. So you open full power and then uh, I think the nozzles, uh, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm mixing after the Mirage or something. Anyway, it was, you could take off without the afterburners too. Okay, so, right. I don't know. I'll I, I probably be, uh, stand corrected later on, but I don't know if you could do that only on a clean uh, MiG-19 or even with the drop tanks. We normally flew with the drop tanks because the clean airplane had uh, very, very little fuel, so you couldn't stay up very long. Mm -hmm. So the first afterburner uh, ride that I did, and I don't know if it's the first one uh, of, uh, or a subsequent one, but I remember that you opened power on the brakes and when you couldn't uh, hold the brakes anymore because the power was so much, you released the uh, power and you were cutting the afterburners. That was, you could hear it in the cockpit. Wow. You could feel the, the, the it's just this lurch forward. And uh, there's nothing I've seen after that uh, like that. Even the Mirage was a hardly noticeable acceleration. Mirage being quite an underpowered airplane compared to the F, F, F6. Uh, the big 19 but this was decidedly and and then later on once i was more experienced we used to do what you uh, functional check flights after maintenance and that used to be usually a clean airplane and that was an amazing experience and i used to always volunteer to do those because you could when you release brakes on the big on a clean airplane big 19 and you cut in the afterburners and within a very short distance, you were at your unstick speed and you, you had to pick the nose up and you could just pick the nose up, get the gaze up and keep rotating, almost vertical. Wow. And you're talking of initial rate of climb of uh, in excess of 30,000 feet a minute. Oh. At that time, an airplane built in the mid-50s, excess of 30,000 30, feet a minute. Most airplanes can't descend that fast and this beast used to be going up that fast. Uh, of course, now F-16s and all these, it's a piece of cake for them. But when you consider the 
the, the raw looks of the airplane. So it's brute force that uh, used to make him do that. And how old were you at this point on your first flight on the MiG-19? MiG-19, my first flight was in 1970, 1970. and uh, I was born in 49, so you do the maths, 21. 21? Wow, no, wow. <laughs> 21 years old. What was I doing at 21? Certainly not that. <laughs> and see, that's, that's what fascinates me, you know, like, <laughs> I, I find myself so fortunate. And that's my first job. You know, people remember their first job, old timers like me. Oh, my first job was doing this and that. My first job was flying these awesome 21. I was flying the big 19. And uh, and uh, and a combat airplane in a combat environment in the best squadron in the air, in the Air Force, elite cool. squadron number 23. So it, it is like, you know, the, that whole memory in my mind is like a, a absolute dream. And I still relive it. Every day is fantastic. Absolutely. So let's get a bit technical here now. So yeah, what did the 19 do? You know, how did it handle and what did it do well and not so well? It did almost everything it was designed for very well. So the Soviets had designed it as a point interceptor that they would use it without their drop tanks. They would use it, they had this, uh, I think, ATOL K-13 missiles, similar to the sidewinders. And it's a heat-seeking uh, missiles, and then the three massive cannons. So the Soviets had designed it for a point interceptor, get up very quick, this unbelievable rate of climb, climb up high, hit the enemy bombers, and get down quick. Yeah. So for that, it was perfect. Mm -hmm. We didn't use it like that. We always flew it normally with the drop tanks, which are uh, which brought the performance down considerably, but still an awesome performance. So what it did very well was air to ground work with a limited range. The radius of uh, action was not much, but we used to fly it in a kind of high-low profile, even during the 1971 war, which uh, I flew a lot air to ground stuff. So we used to keep as high as possible to extend the range. Then before uh, the enemy radars could pick us up, we'd get in low, do our stuff, and exit and get up high as soon as possible so that you can get back to, to base. Handling, uh, after after the 86, you found that it needed more inputs, more control inputs uh, on the rudder. You definitely needed a rudder on the MiG-19. In case of point is, it had a very high sweep back, I think around 57 degrees on the wow. leading edge. That was a very high sweep back. So what, what, what and, and if you notice on the MiG-19 airframe, you know, they have these huge, big boundary layer fences, like strikes on top of the wing. And that's all because to stop the uh, spanwise flow yeah. at high angle of attack, it, it used to have uh, pretty adverse uh, characteristics. And like uh, like F-86, you could take it down to its stalled speed, minimum speed, no big deal, you know. Yeah. But MiG-19, you have to be very careful. If you're close to your... Uh, max angle of attack at low speed, even with full power, or even with afterburners, you had to be very careful with ailerons. Now, if you wanted to turn, if you wanted to turn the conventional way, and you put in a, a aileron, it would surprise you in a hurry. Most, most, most time, it would just flick on the other side. 
and completely go out of control. So you had to nurse it with very little input of the aileron, but nurse it with the rudders. And pilots who managed to learn that, master that, uh, got to know to fly the F- F6 uh, to the limits. Yeah. So that was that was one adverse thing. A lot of people we had we had uh, in our air force also some accidents turning base. If you're coming into land, young inexperienced pilots, you can let the speed drop. You could you could flick it, and there'd be no room for recovery then. So Tahi, you mentioned you flew in the seventy-one war. Can you tell us about your contribution or what happened with your flying career in this conflict? Yes. Uh, so uh, Mike, I was on the. Uh, MiG-19s now, F-6s, based in uh, Sargoda. So before the war started, as tension was happening, we moved to a satellite base uh, south of uh, our main air, uh, air base. And we are the only squadron over there. So we were, it's a bit of a forward base to the to the border. So our role was um, on the number 23 squadron was basically uh, first few days of the war, just uh, uh, close air patrol, air superiority in our air defensive, and then uh, some uh, uh, air to ground uh, support with the army. There was big tank battles going on on the on the border, uh, and uh, so I flew about eight or nine uh, missions uh, doing uh, ground support, uh, uh, hitting uh, enemy tanks. So we used to we used to do that. It was again a high low profile carry three uh, massive guns, 30-millimeter cannons, which, you know, I tell you, the, the <laughs> shell was a big shell. It's like uh, fat as your arm. And uh, and you could, you could when the three guns, when you fired the three guns, it's so fantastic. It's a rock the airplane, it's shake everything. The gun sight would be moving around. You could smell the cordite in the, in the cockpit. It's beautiful, beautiful uh, sound and smell of the three guns firing. And then we had, uh, rockets uh, under the uh, wings. We had the old Chinese 57 millimeter rockets, and we had uh, locally modified to 68 millimeter rockets also. And then we had two missiles, which we normally always couldn't carry on the air to ground. So uh, I did a lot of uh, these air to ground uh, stuff, hitting enemy, enemy tanks, and that was very exciting. So we used to go at a high low profile, pull up there and attack the enemy tanks. And uh, uh, usually the battle, a tank battle, is a very, very dusty and kind of chaotic thing uh, to be, uh, you know, you can hardly differentiate the enemy tanks from your own. They all look alike. So you have to be very careful doing that. Very exciting. Uh, and you always, you know, a young fighter pilot, you press in the attack very close. You're told, please do not, come any closer than the prescribed range because you can be hit by one uh, ricochet of your own bullets bouncing off the mm-hmm. thing, but you, all that goes out of the window with your <laughs> in actual situation. is too exciting. So uh, one time when I was pulling off just over hit, hitting an uh, enemy tank with the, with the guns, strafing it, and I, my airplane just rocked and I just kind of dipped the wing, nearly uh, hit the ground. Came back. I thought I'd been hit by the attack. There was a lot of attack uh, firing, and actually, it was just that I pressed my attack too close, and I must have hit the leader's jet wash, who was just pulling out of the dive. Right. So, fortunately, nothing happened. So that was basically what I did: uh, uh, air to ground, 
exciting stuff, uh, hitting enemy tanks or trucks or whatever, opportunity targets. Uh, we hit uh, a railway station one time, destroyed their goods train, which was very exciting too. Uh, good stuff. But then there was, uh, you know, we were looking up to for an air-to-air uh, uh, encounter, which everybody looks up to. And I wasn't, I didn't get any of that, except for one time, and I'll quickly relate the story. We, we were running it to hit the tanks in the early morning over this uh, border area. And as the leader called, you know, you, uh, you come to an initial point, and from there you run in to your uh, target. And you a leader says, okay, we have three airplanes, and one aborted uh, on the runway because of some problem. So the leader called to check your gun switches, and all guns armed and switches armed and so it's all for A to ground. We're going to do strafing. We didn't carry missiles on that mission. We had just uh, fuel tanks and uh, rockets and guns. So as the leader said, stand by to pull up. And he said, pulling up now. And then he says, uh, you know, look for the target and on the left side. So as we are about to pull up, and I'm number three, and I look up and I saw these two, uh, uh, at that time, I didn't know, it's two enemy airplanes turning away from me. And they were also doing air to uh, air attacks on our tanks. And I just got, you know, our briefing is you maintain uh, formation integrity, you keep the, you call out the enemy airplanes and keep the uh, leader's tail clear and let him uh, engage the airplanes, the enemy airplanes. All that went out of the window. I was so excited, the adrenaline pumping. I called out, I said, uh, leader, bogey stole o'clock. There was two airplanes I saw really close range. I just punched my drop tanks and jettisoned my drop tanks and cut in burners. And I got behind them. Now they saw me and they pulled into me anyway. Long story short, both these, there were two SU-7s and they are the Indians, uh, airplane, Soviet built airplane, larger fighter bomber kind of airplane. Awesome, awesome airplane. They both hit the deck and they exited towards their, with the sobbing uh, turned into them. I hit the deck behind them, and the the terminal speed, the limiting speed at low level of both SU-7 and F F-6 was uh, similar. So now it was a clean airplane, no drop tanks, full afterburner, chasing them, and I couldn't close in, but I was still close enough to it. So, and they're both going straight on level, very low, low level, treetop level, and I'm right behind them, so I open fire. I said, you know, before they uh, accelerate away, because that has a little uh, speed edge over me. So they're both line astern, turn, not in a battle formation. I'm behind them. So I started opening fire with my three guns, and I'm not hitting. Now, there's a limited ammunition. I think they had 201 rounds total, and a low rate of fire. When it fires, it's not like the Gatling guns or the M7-21s or whatever they had, 61s. It's a very, da, 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 da. so it's a low rate of fire, but three guns firing, I didn't hit. So you give short bursts of a half a second or, and I fired and I fired and they're just flying away from me at very low level and I'm right behind them. So I picked on my sight up and moved it right and left. I'm not hitting them. They, you know, if you get one round of this 30 millimeter anywhere on the SU-7, it'll bring it down. Yeah. You know, it's enough to almost bring a tank down. So I'm, now I'm saying bloody hell, and I'm cursing and swearing and, you know, just going hell, hell for leather. I didn't hit them. Ran out full uh, total ammunition, but we 
called Winchester. My leader called me, he was, where are you? And then I said, I'm chasing these guys. And then I called him out. I said, uh, leader, I'm Winchester, and I'm heading back. So I broke off from the from this. I went, by now, we were well into enemy territory. And we are seeing trucks and buses and whatever pass very uh, <laughs> flash by. So I started climbing up because I have no choice to, to get back. I'm a clean airplane, no extra fuel. I barely managed it back to my base. And wow. after I touched down on the runway, my left engine flamed out because of field starvation. So I just made it uh, very... So anyway, came landed. I complained. I, I was furious. I told my squadron commander, I said, these guns are not harmonized. I was very close. He said, calm down. He said, let's look at your cine, the gun camera film. So everybody, the whole squadron in the underground bunker, they put on my film. And I said, look at that, look at that. See these airplanes, these two big airplanes, uh, SU-7s, and I'm firing and I'm not hitting. So my squadron commander said, just hold it here. He said, do you see the gun sight moving? And when he said, I said, no. Oh, I said, oh my God. Yeah. I had forgotten, I had forgotten to uncage the sight. It's a air to ground mode. And I'd forgotten in the excitement to uncage it and get in the air to air mode. So that's my big goof up. We're going to move on here uh, to here. Uh, so how many hours did you get on the MiG-19? I don't have my logbook with me, Mike. And it's back in Pakistan now. But I think close to 400 hours, wow. which was substantial. In those days, we used to fly a lot. We used to even on fighter squads, uh, unlike, uh, I believe, later on with the, uh, the, the, start, the Air Force didn't fly as much for other reasons. But we used to fly a lot, sometimes uh, two flights a day, sometimes even three flights a day. Short flights, typical MiG-19 flight would be, I would say, between 45 minutes to an hour, five, an hour, 10 minutes, if you're doing high-level stuff. But low-level stuff, uh, strikes or air combat, you'll burn as the fuel goes down very, very quick. Absolutely. So to hear you also went on to the Mirage uh, 3 and 5, I believe. Can you tell us what it was like to fly? Um, and did you enjoy your time on it? I love the Mirage also. I love each airplane of you, Mike. So, you know, it might be a repetition, You've but got. some I enjoyed all of them. Of course, the Mirage um, at that time was uh, very new to the Pakistan Air Force. It was a very uh, high-performance airplane, Mark II plus airplane. Beautiful uh, aesthetics when you look at it especially after the MiG-19, to look at Loved the airplane, fantastic uh, airplane. We had a dual-seater uh, Mirage also, which I trained on, uh, different systems, French systems. But I love the airplane. It's uh, fantastic. We had it as a multi-role airplane again, uh, uh, night, as a night interceptor, day interceptor. And so uh, beautiful airplane, loved it. So how long did you spend in the Air Force and did what did you fly after your Air Force career? Yes, uh, uh, Mike, I was in the Air Force two years of uh, training, basic training in uh, the academy, and then nine years I was uh, as a commissioned officer in the Air Force. For some personal reasons, I had to very reluctantly, much against my own personal desire, I had to leave the Air Force. So I, I left the Pakistan Air Force. I joined in 66 January. I left in mid-76, uh, uh, the Air Force. And then I went on to a uh, short stint as a as a instructor in a, in a flying club in Karachi, a few months only, on the Cessnas and Aztecs and stuff. 
And then I ended up flying corporate in Saudi Arabia. My first job uh, corporate was in Saudi Arabia. And since then, <clears throat> that was in 1977, uh, late 77, that I started flying in Saudi Arabia corporate. Since then, all my life till the time I've retired just in 2019. 2019. So all these years, it's been uh, corporate flying, uh, all kinds of uh, corporate jets uh, from uh, the smallest Sable Liners. I started with Sable Liners, Lear Jets, on to up to the 767, Boeing 767. Wow. And uh, so a whole lot of uh, uh, corporate jets, yes, different parts of the world. Wow, that must have been amazing. So this one is from Alexander. What is your favorite mission? Um, air to air, strike, cast, etc. Favorite mission would be air to air, uh, but not just an intercept, uh, or not just an intercept and shoot down somebody and come down. Air to air means air combat, mm -hmm. ACM, what you call air, air combat maneuvering. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite, absolutely. So this is from Jin Zhang. He asks, can you describe and compare your flight experiences flying BFM in all various jet aircraft you flew and what would be his favorite BFM arena? Okay, uh, for that, hands down is the F-6, my favorite uh, BFM airplane. Uh, and also uh, maybe, uh, you know, the, the F-6, the performance of the F-6, and basically F-6, unlike other airplanes that I'd flown, in, in the F-6, you needed a lot of skill to handle it to its limit. Everybody could fly it, but the good pilots or the good stick and throttle pilots as we, uh, in fighter pilot parlance, uh, good uh, uh, fighter jockeys, you could, they stood out from the rest of the crowd because it was, it would differentiate between people who learned or who could push it to the limits and fly to the max. So that was purely my uh, best uh, air combat airplane. Brilliant. Well, hopefully uh, to hear answered your question there, folks. But uh, we're going to move on to some personal questions here. So to hear, uh, do you have any hobbies? Yes, uh, I am a pretty keen sailor. I've uh, I've had two sailboats. I still have a sailboat sitting in Cyprus, and uh, I'm a um, keen sailor. I'm not saying very good sailor. I used to do hang gliding also here in uh, Italy and in France, which I haven't done for a few years, but I love doing that. A bit of scuba diving and stuff like that. Yeah, busy man. Uh, favorite aircraft you have flown? Hands down, the F six. Big nineteen. Thought you were going to say that. <laughs> One you wish you could have flown that you haven't flown. Oh, the F sixteen. I probably you know because it came to the RA first few years later after I had left. Not that they would have put me on that if I was there. But I've got a lot of friends who have flown it, and I've been following the F sixteen development, and I think that would be an awesome airplane to fly. Absolutely. And I want to ask you a question. Have you had any ejections in your flying career? Yes, I did. I've had uh, one successful ejection out of a mirage, and that was in Libya. I was an instructor over there in Libya, 
and that was not a dual seater Mirage uh, out of a Martin Baker seat and fantastic. I'm still around. I had no back injuries, nothing. My student pilot, he was an Egyptian pilot, a captain. He unfortunately broke his leg and they had to amputate his leg on landing on the ground. But I was, I was just fine. So that was a, a happy, successful ejection. And so after that, uh, you know, before that, uh, Mirage ejection, when I was flying the F-6s in, in Pakistan, so I was uh, fairly new to the airplane. I was doing practice air combat with my, uh, with my flight commander, who was a very skillful, very good uh, pilot. And uh, at about 25,000 feet or so, we were doing uh, scissors, uh, 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 slow speed scissors. I passed behind his uh, airplane, very close range. He in full afterburners, very high angle of attack and hit his jet wash, and the airplane went to this spin. Now, I'd spun the airplane before a few times, and it's, it's, a, it's, not a, it's a vicious spin, but the recovery is pretty uh, simple, and I'd gotten out of the spin recovery uh, uh, quite a few times before that. Now, this time, when it started spinning at about 25,000 feet, and the flight commander called me out, he said, you left hand spin, so, and I applied the uh, recovery procedure, and nothing happened. I was still spinning. So I neutralized the controls again, and again, uh, recovery procedures are very much like a T-37 recovery, rudders neutral, throttles idle, and stick fully, and then you direction spin, opposite rudder, and full forward stake, and you come out of it. It didn't. So I attempted three quick recoveries, and I'm still spinning, so the flight commander, he said, you know, 10,000 feet, you're supposed to punch out. And uh, now, when he was coming to 10,000 feet, he said, you're still spinning, eject. So I said, I, you know, I got hold of the thing and I pulled it. I got in the ejection and I could feel the wind come in, the, you know, whoosh of the wind. And in, in training, they tell us it seems like a lifetime once a canopy fires and, mm-hmm. the, and the seat fires, so just stay in that uh, ejection posture. It'll break your neck when it fires. So I'm sitting there and now but the seat's not going anywhere. It's definitely more than one second. And I can feel the wind come in. So I pulled the thing again a couple of times. Nothing happened. And now I got back on the controls. And I again attempted the recovery. You know, I'm, mind you, it's after 10,000 feet, I'm still spinning down. And the airplane recovered and recovers in a very you know, slow attitude. Thank God it recovered. And now I've heaved on the stick to, you know, uh, uh, pull out. And it accelerated, stalled a little bit. Then I eased it out. And I open part and started climbing out. What had happened, Mike, quickly, I'll tell you, and I climbed out and I came back and landed, he, my flight commander chasing me. What had happened, the F-6, the MiG-19 had a system where there were two pneumatic thrusters on this canopy sill that would fire when you put the ejection mechanism, that would fire in that these pneumatic thrusters would unlock the canopy raise the front of the canopy into the airstream mm-hmm. about six inches or so and the canopy will fly off with the with the airstream and that the flying off the canopy would actually arm your seat to fire oh wow okay so un- unless the canopy went the seat wouldn't fire now in my case the right thruster had fired the pneumatic thruster the left one had failed for whatever reason so now the canopy was offset off the rails offset, twisted in a very grotesque manner, hanging like that. And the right side of the uh, 
uh, cockpit was open. The left side was locked. The lock was twisted. Anyway, I wasn't worried about that. I was so happy that the engines were working, and I started climbing out, came back and landed. Mm-hmm. After I landed, and my flight commander, I could hear him. He couldn't hear me because and, uh, transmission antenna was also in the can. It was all messed up. And he's telling me, make a smooth landing because if it fires on touchdown, you're dead because the, the minimum safe ejection on the Chinese seat were very, very high. Uh, 750 feet was minimum emergency wow. ejection. Anyway, I landed. Nothing happened. Stopped the airplane on the runway or everybody came uh, to And now they had a hard time finding out how to get me out of the airplane. The canopy stuck over there. They were worried that the seat is hot, which was not really hot because canopy hadn't won yet. But I had to sit in the in this hot seat, supposedly, for about an hour before they could extricate me. So that was a harrowing experience. And uh, I flew again. After that, I, uh, I asked my flight uh, squadron commander, after a couple of days when I recovered from this uh, thing, that I'd like to go up and spin the airplane again so that I get it out of my system. Yeah. And I did that. I did that too. Yeah. Jump right back into the deep end, I think. Yeah. Well, what a career you've had uh, to hear, and um, I'm still surprised you're alive with all your, all your events that's happened in your flying career. Absolutely amazing. But uh, yeah, to wrap up the interview, um, do you, can we find you online, or is there anything else you would like to say to our viewers? Online, yes. Uh, online, well, uh, I don't have a website or anything, uh, but I've got my uh, email address, which you have it. Maybe you can put it on later on. We can uh, post that. That's uh, that's uh, what I am on, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been very nice talking. Mike, can I just plug in one thing? Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, uh, quickly, it's more of a public service message. So you know, my my career started. I my, my, I first soloed on a T thirty seven when I was uh, in uh, nineteen sixty seven when I was uh, barely seventeen, and uh, and I flew nonstop. I've no, not had a break in my flying career till 2019. So it's almost 51, 52 years of active flying different airplanes. I've been blessed, fantastic. So in 2019, I was flying in Africa on a Gulfstream 550. I was there for three years in Lagos, Nigeria, when I came down with a lung cancer. And uh, that was diagnosed as a stage four lung cancer. So at my age, I was almost, uh, almost 70 at that time. A stage four lung cancer, that was almost two years ago. Now, after I went to, uh, to Houston to a cancer hospital, MD Anderson over there for a few months, now I'm being treated in Italy at a very remarkable, fantastic hospital, very close to where I live in Torino. So what my message is that, you know, stage four lung cancer, by definition, they, they call it incurable. But look at me, two years later, I'm totally curable. I don't look like I'm ready to get off this bus yet. Absolutely and not. I've, ha- I've got a very good quality of life. I go walking every day. I eat, I drink. I, I've, I've got a fantastic full life. And it is because when, when I came to, uh, to Italy, to this uh, cancer hospital, they asked me if I'd volunteer for a, for a uh, clinical trial. And that's what I'm trying to tell people who you may know who are su- suffering cancer or themselves may be patients that cancer is no more a, a, a death uh, warranty, that you're not going to die. 
if this clinical trial I'm undergoing is called PIVOT02, it's a combination of uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I've had it for two years. It's going to end in April. And by that time, so already my uh, main tumors has shrunk more than 83%. Wow. So I've, I've, you know, I'm, I go for my treatment every month. They do scans. They say it is a remarkable recovery, a medical recovery. What I want to tell people is, if you know somebody who's suffering from cancer, these clinical trials, there are many. You can find them on Google. There are many clinical trials being run by some pharma companies. But the, the moral of the story is you get cancer. It is not the end of your life. Live happily. Get on with it. Keep a positive attitude. Keep active. I walk every day 10 kilometers in a big forest that's close to my house here. And so there is life after cancer. So that's why my message. And stay upbeat. You'll beat it. Absolutely. And what a great message to end on and testament to all the doctors and nurses who you've been working with. And yeah, to hear you look absolutely brilliant and healthy. And yeah, I'm sure like all our viewers are going to wish you well for the future because you've had a remarkable career and yeah, you look great. Thank you very much, Mike. Nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks for uh, sharing your story. And I'm sure we can have you back on the show soon. So thank you very much. I got more stories for you, though. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. I'll take you up on that. Cheers, Mike. Cheers. Bye.